That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You. Thank you for taking time out of your day uh, to spend the next hour with me as we uh, dig into some things, or maybe more accurately, get under some things uh, in our public discourse and uh, things like that that uh, are really relevant in our society and uh, hopefully can point us in the direction of better connection with ourselves and with others, no matter whether we agree with them or not. And it's in the spirit of that last part uh, that I am approaching uh, today's show. It is a monumental time in uh, this country. Uh, seemingly, we've had a lot of monumental times in this country as of late. And uh, today's uh, episode is going to be dedicated to discussing um, all that has happened in the last few days, starting uh, last Friday with the Supreme Court overturning uh, the Roe versus Wade uh, decision and uh, sending uh, abortion rights uh, questions and laws back to the 50 states uh, to rule upon. So um, it seems like the the only thing to really talk about this week. So let's just go ahead and jump right into what in the world is going on and start the conversation. There is no longer a federal constitutional right to an abortion. The Supreme Court has essentially reshaped American life. It's going to be legal chaos. Where abortion is legal in about half the states, illegal in half the states. Even though America was braced for the decision, it was nonetheless momentous. Fifty years worth of women's rights in America overturned in an instant. And of course, that is the big news of the weekend. But it isn't the only legal news of the weekend that uh, has potentially far-reaching effects uh, in American life at every level. The Supreme Court, in addition to uh, the major ruling on abortion, also issued major rulings on guns, on public education, the use of vouchers uh, in, uh, in education, and uh, several other things, which we will get to. All public, and just today, as a matter of fact, uh, out in this neck of the woods in Washington State, on public displays uh, of faith, and we'll get into those as much as we can. Uh, but it is not an overstatement to say that uh, what has happened in the last few days has uh, been a foundational shake uh, to standard operating procedure legally, socially, medically, uh, politically in this country for quite some time. And uh, we're going to focus initially on uh, the abortion discussion, but uh, there's a number of places I want to go today. And for that reason, uh, it'll just be you and me uh, today. So today this show is all about you and me and what does this all mean uh, for all of us. Uh, in a 6-3 ruling, which broke along uh, partisan lines, the Supreme Court on Friday, even though the news had leaked uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, sent uh, abortion laws back to the states, overruling uh, 50 years of precedent with Roe versus Wade. And even though it was done uh, in theory, based on the uh, decision written by Justice Samuel Alito on uh, a technicality issue uh, at, 
I suppose you could call it that, um, seeing some flaws in the argumentation of Roe uh, in its in its earliest stages. It does fit in, unfortunately, uh, with the most radical voices um, politically on the political right in this country, and that itself is a, is a problem. So before we get into that, what does all of this mean? And certainly we've been hearing a lot about what this means from a lot of different quarters. And so I'll just sort of chime in, generally speaking, where, where I, some, things, some things I think are going to go here. Uh, you heard in that clip uh, somebody mentioned that legal chaos was going to follow. I think that is a foregone conclusion, and it's already happened at the federal and the state levels. Now, instead of one national discussion about abortion and one national precedent, there are now going to be 50 different sets of laws, all of them uh, in some way, shape, or form most likely contested by somebody uh, on either side of this issue. And, uh, and understandably so, this is going to be something now that states are going to be increasingly defining themselves against as to whether or not they either allow for a woman's right uh, to have an abortion or they don't. And much like so many other things in society, this one issue doesn't just stand on its own. It connects to a number of other ones. It's going to add uh, to the deepened divides that already exist between uh, political groups, uh, social groups, religious groups in this country, which uh, is in and of itself another uh, thing we did not need. And also studies have shown both here in the United States as well as around the world that uh, the burden and the impact uh, of these changes in the states where uh, abortion will be banned and maybe already is in the, in, uh, the aftermath of this decision, that's about half of U.S. states, that impact will be felt most profoundly on economically, socially, and ethnically marginalized groups in American society. And this is proven. This has been seen in the United States. It was seen in the United States before Roe. It will be seen afterwards. And it's been seen in countries around the world. And that, of course, will add into all of the other discussions and debates and battles and divisions that have been happening in this country over all those questions as well. I also think, though, We'll also be, we're beginning to see a sea change in how Americans understand their political uh, rights as well as their ability to affect them. In particular, state politics uh, are going to be that much more important moving forward. More and more people in this country are going to be knowing what the abortion laws are in various states and learning about them, what, regardless of what side of the issue they are on uh, for their own reasons. And it is going to hopefully, in my opinion, because I think this is necessary, lead to increased participation in voting at the state level, uh, the regional level, the county level, the municipal level. Um, I'm sure all of you have seen that when in your own local area, when you're watching returns uh, on election night and various elections, oftentimes in the local and state elections, you don't have numbers in the hundreds of thousands, even if you live in a major urban area. There are oftentimes four figures, maybe five figures in areas, which means about, it's particularly where I live, it's about one out of every 10 people are voting in state elections or in county elections or in city elections. These are going to matter a lot more uh, moving forward. I think there is a lot of positives uh, potentially in that because more participation is where we get a better sense of what majority opinion is. And of course, for those who are sitting there going, well, the majority of opinion in this country supports um, the access to abortion and reproductive rights for women and now have just been uh, a minority opinion has no ruled against that. Yeah, I get that. Uh, and that is an issue. And we'll talk a little bit about that uh, moving forward. 
on that whole thing about uh, local elections mattering more. Uh, it is an opportunity, for, particularly for uh, people who are uh, pro-choice and uh, lean more Democrat, uh, to really do because largely compared to conservatives over the last 40 years, uh, those state municipal local elections have been a lot more ignored by people, I guess, on the political left than you could say on the political right. Now, on the other side uh, of this, uh, conservatives who seemingly, particularly pro-life conservatives, and I, I draw a very, I want to draw very important distinctions here. Just being a conservative does not make you pro-life. And just because you're a liberal doesn't make you pro-choice. I get all of that. Um, and so it, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying not to paint with too broad a brush here. But generally speaking, right, conservatives seemingly have had this constant chip on their shoulders that they're either being persecuted because they have minority views um, rather than just being really disagreed with. Uh, they've had a head start on all of this. They have been in the dissenting seat on abortion for 50 years. They've been motivated strongly uh, in advocacy over the last 50 years to get to this point at both the state level and the national level. And uh, my question to them would be, are you ready for the role reversal that is probably about to come? As opposed to about one in four Americans uh, being in the dissenting chair, if you will. Now it's going to be about three out of every four on the dissenting chair. Are you ready for that? Because that wave is probably coming, right? As I mentioned just a minute ago, the majority of Americans who, just based on pretty much every poll and study you could take a look at, majority of Americans uh, believe in a woman's right uh, to choose, make choices for her reproductive health, and the majority of them are pro some sort of gun control. But now, both of those majorities are in the minority when it comes to what the law allows, at least at the federal level. And if that feels completely backwards... I get it. <laughs> There's a couple things historically that are worth keeping in mind. The Supreme Court of the United States, while it has the quote-unquote final say, it often isn't in the final say. In the past, past courts have made rulings that have tried to roll back various rights before, and it either takes a long time to undo them. I'm thinking of the Plessy versus Ferguson case in 1896 that led to separate but equal that codified segregation in this country. That took decades for the civil rights movement to effectively undo. Or they can lead to massive upheaval, such as the Dred Scott versus Sanford decision in 1857 that uh, effectively ruled Dred Scott was property of a slave owner who had moved him to a non-slave state, and it effectively ended the division on slavery between the northern states and the southern states and is seen by historians as one of the precursors to the Civil War. So the Supreme Court has been on, I think in both cases, I would say, the wrong side of history when it comes to that. And so one can look at this and say, one can say that this is a, this is a, uh, a historical precedent that might very well play out the same way, that an attempt to roll back rights will not succeed. Uh, but that's really cold comfort when we take the historical precedent that there either needs to be a conflagration that plunges the nation into crisis as the Civil War, or decades upon decades of advocacy that will not help necessarily all the people living in that period of time where that advocacy takes time to play out. And of course, this is made even more difficult by the fact that the pro-life side of this 
has been having this battle and sees this the same way. They see, they saw the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade as a wrongful decision and worked against it. And so you have clashing narratives, clashing understandings of what is best for America, what, what, what its history tells us about where we're supposed to go. And so it can be really easy to see that to say that what we are looking at moving forward is a constant battle of wills over time. Now, what I would say to that is, in part, yes, it's always been that way on some level in this country. It might very well stay that way. Very few laws remain set in stone for perpetuity without challenge or defense. And in fact, the history of this country shows that many of them, particularly the ones that are full of controversy, require constant defense by those who advocate for them or constant challenge by those who want to see things changed. And we can go back in history and see plenty of them, right? A woman's right to vote, for example, it only culminated in 1919 with the rights of women to vote. But the battle went back decades. Certainly the questions over slavery and equal rights uh, for African Americans goes back to, at least to the Constitution, establishment of the Constitution in 1787, and the compromise that was reached at the Constitutional Convention in order to bring the Southern states in, the three-fifths compromise, that counted every three slaves as, uh, as five people uh, to vote for a representation, since the South had much less representation in terms of population for Congress than the North. So all of these things taken together historically, it can become... Uh, quite a morass. And depending on how we feel about any given issue at any time, we can cherry pick through history to find things that can support our side. And if we aren't careful, demonize the other side as uh, anti-American, <laughs> anti-moral, anti-ethical, uh, all these things. And we've seen it in history time and time again. And uh, it's, it's a constant American problem. Uh, from from what I've seen. And so there is no easy way uh, to say this is what needs to be done, this is how it needs to go, uh, but it certainly is a time now that the reactions are really settling in and people are making their opinions heard on social media in protests around the country uh, in new legal file filings in places like Louisiana where there's been an attempt to put a freeze on the uh, new trigger law in Louisiana that has banned abortion in Florida, where the abortion law is being challenged uh, by a Jewish family around the rights around a religious liberty question that um, in this person's uh, part of their Judaic faith um, needing to have uh, the possibility of an abortion to protect the health of the mother, the life of the mother is a precept of their religion. All of these things are going to start emerging from a number of different directions. It's already started. So with all of that, um, it can be really difficult to see where to go, how to feel, how to even uh, have a conversation uh, about these questions and about these issues without it descending into anger, uh, frustration, resentment, uh, and people turning inward to talk with one another uh, solely about what to do here. Uh, and that, of course, is uh, part of a larger problem. We, we tend to oftentimes like to talk to people who already agree with us and have discussions with them. 
rather than step outside of them. And I get the challenges in that. Uh, and that doesn't mean that all those con- types of conversations can happen because it takes, of course, two willing parties minimum to have those conversations. Uh, but certainly the uh, need for that or the need to at least consider that seems to me uh, <laughs> to be very clear uh, at this point in time, um, despite the fact that I know it will not be easy. And I guess what I'm suggesting here in this first segment is uh, that none of this has been easy before. None of it ever will be easy. And uh, there are going to be victories and setbacks uh, no matter what, whether we're talking about in an election or a Supreme Court ruling or anything like that. That said, that said, I have some important opinions uh, from my own vantage point to share and some things to think about. Uh, but we'll do that on the other side of the break. And as we go into the break, uh, you'll be hearing uh, about the show's sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, a wonderful organization based down in Portland that provides life and career pathways uh, for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace. You'll hear more about them. And uh, we'll come on back and talk a little bit more about all the tumultuousness in this country on this show is all about you. Stick around. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You. It's just you and me today uh, talking about uh, the ramifications, the meaning, and the where to next uh, following the big Supreme Court decisions uh, over the last few days on abortion, certainly the most prominent, but also on uh, the right of people to bear arms in public, uh, also on the use of uh, school public school vouchers for religious schools and uh, for uh, expressions of faith in public school settings. There's a lot of those going on. And uh, and everybody feels strongly in some way, shape, or form about something about those. And we've had a lot of those, uh, a lot of those different examples in the news of late. And so before the before the break, I talked a little bit kind of a more broadly speaking of some things that I think will 
uh, be coming out of this, at least in the short term. But I want to be clear at this point about where I stand on on these recent decisions. And I think it's important to stress here, I don't normally talk about uh, my political affiliations uh, on the air. I don't really talk about them too much in general because I don't fit any convenient category. Um, I find it hilarious sometimes that when I'm sitting with friends who are more conservative leaning, they just assume I agree with them. And it happens the other direction. Uh, no matter what we're talking about, I can be sitting with my left-leaning friends and we're going to be talking about something and they'll think I agree with them. And then I end up being sometimes that person who kind of disturbs the conversation by saying, yeah, I'm not sure that's right. Uh, <laughs> I was not raised uh, to uh, be one thing or another, and certainly in my, politically speaking, and in my whole life and in my academic pursuits, in my study of history, I have found that uh, no political side has uh, cornered the market on rightness or on uh, cornered the market on long-term view or morality, depending on what we're talking about over time. And so I have tended uh, to vote for people in specific positions at specific times who I think will do the best job on what's needed. Generally speaking, I guess you could say I'm somewhat fiscally conservative in the sense that I don't like governments ratcheting up huge amounts of debt. Uh, but I also believe that there is a use for government programs, particularly to help uh, the less fortunate in society, how we decide to, how we decide to define that. Uh, and I do think this nation has not only an opportunity, but also an obligation to work steadily towards creating a more equitable society. And uh, that doesn't mean that people on the right or on the left are just inherently for or against that in ways that I think would be best. But I put that out there because what it does do, at least for me on multiple occasions, is people accuse me of being in the middle of the road, and that's fine. Um, but the problem with that is, as Adlai Stevenson, a uh, liberal politician, once said, the problem with being in the middle of the road is you can get hit by traffic going both directions. And uh, I have, let's just say I've gotten skilled at dodging traffic. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, I have my opinions on uh, a number of things here. And uh, I know you want to know what I think of these rulings. Um, I think it was a mistake to overturn Roe versus Wade. I think it was one that um, in the short term is brazenly blind to the impact this is going to have across the spectrum of American society. And the Supreme Court has an obligation, just like the legislative branch and the executive branch, to care about what is happening in the fabric of American society. To just simply drop shockwave bombs into the body politic is not a good idea. Uh, and it never has been historically. And I would honestly expect Supreme Court justices who are supposed to be among the most broadly minded, uh, historically and civically aware individuals we have, hence why they're on the Supreme Court. It's kind of stunning that uh, something like this, from that perspective, would simply be just tossed into the mix like this. This is going to have a ripple effect, and in some cases, a tidal wave effect on the economy, on politics, on America's standing in the world, as well as, as, well as what it will do to our public discourse around not only abortion, but just about everything else. Now, while a return to the pre-1973 reality of abortions may not be imminent, in that about half the states have protections for abortion, and in some cases, states like California and Washington have uh, reproductive rights encoded into their laws, the concerns that some people have now, many people have, that there will now follow a national effort through Congress to ban abortion at the federal level, those seem to me to be valid concerns. 
especially considering that, one, the conservative majority on the court has shown a propensity for cherry-picking from historical precedents and their understanding of the Constitution, and I'll have more on that soon, considering also that the three most recent justices appointed during the last administration have showed that they were willing to, how shall we say it, be less than honest in their recent confirmation hearings when it came to what they would do as justices regarding Roe v. Wade. All of them said it was the established law of the land. They would allow it to stand. Now, did anybody really believe that on either side of the, of the debate? Seemingly a few naive, moderate Republican senators believed them enough to, uh, to confirm them for the courts. But they were clearly believed differently. So if this court says that in this decision, the Constitution, as they said, did not does not say anything about abortion. So that needs to go to the states, as the Constitution says. Anything that is not laid out in the Constitution goes to the states. That is the that is the reading of the Constitution that uh, Samuel Alito referred to. With that, does that mean it would now strike down any new federal law? If it passes, because, of course, a federal law would be taking it out of the realm, out of the control of the states. Well, if we're going to argue for consistency, you would think that the court would strike that down and wouldn't even hear the case in the first place. But does anyone on either side of this debate really believe that that's a foregone conclusion, that they would strike it down? I don't. And that's based on the recent court's record that shows they have a direction that they want to be going, this conservative majority, where they want things to go. The guns question. Individual liberty on that, religious liberty, right? The right to choose uh, public, you know, where where to send kids to public schools with vouchers, and that, what that ruling said is that it can actually uh, people can uh, use vouchers for schools that will not take non-Christian students, <laughs> uh, among other things, right? So, some big big things. So, mm, I'm not so sure that based on all of those precedents, uh, the Supreme Court can be given the benefit of the doubt that it is necessarily going to follow through on what it says are these precedents. If it's already been cherry-picking in its historical examples and its understanding of the Constitution, what's to prevent it from cherry-picking again around some sort of new argument for something that the majority of its members would probably really like to see? A national ban on abortion. I don't see it. And a, a shaking in the confidence of the Supreme Court is bad. Historically, it is bad. I mentioned the Civil War. I mentioned segregation. Those are not good things to look back on. And and we can see that Supreme Court decisions right there played a major role in that type of upheaval. Now, the hopeful part of that is the Supreme Court made decisions, for example, um, in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 to begin unraveling segregation. So the court can make decisions that lead in positive directions and that reflect majority opinion. However, there's something deeper here that I think we should probably consider. I, I also disagree with the, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and some of these others because uh, it really seems like an attempt by those who support this, who are in the minority in this country, to simply slap a ban on something or, in the case of guns, to simply blankly allow something because then they think that somehow ends the debate, that that solves the problem. Now, historically speaking, people on either side can do this, right? Obviously, 50 years of uh, a row world 
did not enshrine protections to abortion reproductive rights in all of perpetuity. So just having it be legal clearly didn't stop efforts to overturn it, efforts to curb it, efforts to reduce it, efforts to demonize people who got them. All those things continued for the 50 years of Roe. So it, t- it takes something a lot more than just either slapping a ban on something or allowing something in perpetuity uh, for it to be something that settles into society and for there to be agreement on and have it not be an issue. Unfortunately, in the case of the abortion ban, so much of this seems to be like, let's slap a ban on it, particularly for hardcore pro-life people who are doing this from a sense of religious conviction more than anything else, on let's just do this because then by doing so, I'll be seen in the right in the eyes of God. Or actually, I think it's more likely, honestly, in the eyes of each other (laughs) than anything else. I've grown up with some people like this, and so I kind of know what I'm talking about. I've worked with them before. I've seen it a lot. I question the motives is what I'm saying here. And I question the big statements among hardcore pro-life activists who tend to be evangelical Christians. I question their motives and their convictions to be part of a so-called post-Roe solution to the chaos and the suffering that is about to follow. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this, reflecting on this over the weekend, and I saw a lot on social media and elsewhere, including some from people that are friends of mine uh, in uh, Christian circles who were posting things, very excited about the, the ruling, who then said, Christians, it's time for us to get to work. And what that meant was, uh, as, as was laid out by some of them, uh, make sure that people who want to give their children up for adoption in states where abortion is legal can uh, abortion is illegal can do so, uh, among other things. What was interesting is what was often left out uh, of that. It was usually adoption was really the only thing. Um, none of them mentioned, uh, well, if we're going to live in a state that bans abortions, uh, we probably the state should probably be helping people raise these kids. <laughs> you know, so what kind of programs? Are we going to allow? But the problem is that runs headlong into another, what seems to be another uh, conservative tentpole, and that is not a whole lot of government programs uh, to help people socially because that, of course, would require more taxes and it's my money, right? Interestingly enough, I wonder sometimes for my Christian friends out there, when does God's money that he's been giving you, um, when does it become your money and when is it his to give to other people? You know, there's there's lots of things here. You can tell I'm getting worked up by this because I think this whole get to work thing uh, is BS. My question, and I say this as kindly as possible to my friends who I love on this side of the spectrum. There are currently, for just one example, right now in this country, there are 500,000 children in the American foster care system. 500,000. Take five of the biggest college football stadiums in this country, the Rose Bowl in California, the big house at the University of Michigan, any others, fill them five times. Take photos of that. That's as many kids in the foster care system who are needing homes for various reasons, who are eligible for adoption. Why wasn't anybody getting to work adopting them? Based on that alone, I question the follow through, maybe not the intention, maybe not the spirit of a desire to help, but the follow through. 
Because if it were that important, you would have been doing it already. So it makes me wonder about that. So often, when groups of any kind, and right now I'm really focusing on this group because they're the ones who I think need to start recognizing that the spotlight is going to be even more on them now. There are so many groups that are not willing, when they see that they are not winning the argument in society a certain way, they look for a simple out or simple way to outlaw something, to make something legal, and then champion it. And then as soon as they've got it, they think that will take care of it. And unfortunately, what has happened, and the foster care system seems to really show this, because a lot of these kids, the majority of them, are not from affluent families. They're the very groups that are going to get hit hardest by all of these laws, or all of these rulings that were passed over the weekend. They're the ones that are going to get hit the hardest. And so what it does is the fact that there's 500,000 of them and all these things, it helps reinforce stereotypes among the more affluent. Well, there's a reason those kids are in foster care. Because their parents must not want to get jobs or their parents are addicted to drugs or their parents shouldn't have had premarital sex. It reinforces all the very things that are at the core of so many of the problems that the United States is facing. An unwillingness by people of means both economically, politically, and socially, to see that there is a fundamental series of levels of unfairness and suffering in the country. We don't want to call it unfairness. That seems to me, particularly from a Christian perspective that I grew up with, those are the things we're actually supposed to care about. Rather than whether or not a law makes a country more moral by having it or less moral by not having it. You sit down and spend 30 seconds on this type of point of view, and you can see how full of crap it really is. This is something that when people cannot win the argument on its merits, that they tend to resort to. And unfortunately, what happens, and this isn't just unique to Christianity, it can happen in any faith. What ends up happening is if you then wrap around your position as the right one from a divine point of view, that you are being directed to do this, it is already very unlikely that anyone is going to be able to have a a successful conversation with you to change your mind, to have you look at something in a different perspective. Because so often, and what's happened with the, pro, with the pro, pro-life activist community for so long, is that they have defined their resistance and reactions to it as them being persecuted. <laughs> Not just disagreed with, but that's the thing. In too many circles, as I've experienced it in my life and seen it elsewhere, Christians seem to embrace this idea that if they're being persecuted, first of all, they have to, it has to be persecution. It can't just be people disagreeing with you or you being kind of a jerk about something. It has to be persecution. But then that that equals proof that they must be on God's right path. Wow. You know who used to say similar things? Christians who were (laughs) pro-slavery. You just make the same argument. You want to be on the same side as that? And if you do, it's even less likely you're probably going to want to have a conversation with me about this. All of that is BS. And you know, spare me the, the weak theological arguments on this. I grew up with all of them. 
I know what they are. I'm a son of a pastor. Been around it my whole life. I've seen it firsthand. One being disagreed with isn't persecution. And lack of compassion for any life, any situation, is something that is problematic in Christianity if you take a broader view of the faith as a whole. So, while you might want to be lauded for your compassion for the unborn, what about your compassion for the ones already born who don't have homes to live in? 500,000 of them. What about compassion for the mothers who have to make these terrible choices in some cases because it's not, contrary to what you believe, it is not always about promiscuous sex and people having abortion as a form of birth control. In fact, that rarely happens compared to all the other reasons that it has to be considered. But to take that away, to take away the ability of a woman to have conversations with her doctors about what those options are, if you can't win the moral argument as to why she should keep that, it might be because the moral argument is only part of the question. The moral argument also has to apply to the mother. And the social and legal responsibility, it seems to me, should also extend to the father. We're not having any conversations about that, about accountability in unwanted pregnancies for the man in that situation. Why aren't we? And if you can't effectively answer that from your side of the aisle, you better come up with a good one if you want anybody to answer it. My guess is you probably don't have one. Or the answer you do you don't really want to say publicly because it might just show what you're actually about. The idea, the charges that have been flying against the political right are going to stick. They already are. When we come back from break, we'll talk a little bit more about that as a way to wrap up today's show. Stick around for this. more of this show is all about you. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't ask me to talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacy Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder. Don't ask me to talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Uh, Thanks for uh, sticking around through uh, this discussion, which I know uh, for some uh, will be uh, very uncomfortable and for others, uh, hopefully helpful. 
very strong uh, opinions, as you can tell, in uh, in my world and in my view, about the the legal decisions handed down down by the Supreme Court over uh, the last few days. And to summarize, if you're coming in late, uh, I think the decisions are short-sighted, myopic, uh, unhealthy, unfair, uh, and detrimental to uh, where the country should go, where it could go. Uh, and because of that, uh, there's going to be a lot of work to do uh, moving forward for a lot of people. And this isn't, uh, believe it or not, this is not a left versus right thing at all. To me, um, this is about uh, taking a real look at what it means to be humans and to care for one another and to provide for one another and to be able to accept one another despite disagreements, differences, and everything from opinion to, be- to religious belief, you name it. We have a long way to go in that regard. And what has happened over the last few days does not help, uh, in my opinion, to go in that direction. And I left off before the break talking about the, uh, the arguments and the uh, accusations being made against uh, pro-life conservatism, in particular, that has been the driving force uh, behind this. And, and the evangelical Christian movement is such a key part of that. And I said before the break that, uh, that those things were going to stick. And uh, I think they are going to. And that's a problem as well. Uh, this whole thing reminded me of a piece that uh, the late comedian George Carlin did back in 1996. You want to talk about something that sticks? This is George Carlin back in 1996 talking about this very issue of abortion. They're really something, aren't they? They're all in favor of the unborn. They will do anything for the unborn. But once you're born, you're on your own. Pro-life conservatives are obsessed with a fetus from conception to nine months. After that, they don't want to know about you. They don't want to hear from you. No nothing. No neonatal care, no daycare, no Head Start, no school lunch, no food stamps, no welfare, no nothing. If you're pre-born, you're fine. If you're preschool, you're fine. I'm sure you picked up on what that last word was there. But uh, nevertheless, that was 1996, many, many years ago. And so this has been something that uh, I think definitely requires people on the political right, no matter what they think on various abortion laws, whether they think that abortion should be legal or whether they think abortion should be illegal, but there need to be exceptions for uh, the health of the mother, for rape or for incest. Regardless, if you're on the political right on this country, that is the vision that many people have of your position on this. And I think it requires a bit of soul searching. The triumphalism that I have seen over the last few days, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Because chances are you're going to be forced to slow your roll pretty quickly. Because the law of unintended consequences always comes about when major shifts happen in the law, in history, you name it. The things that everyone goes into something anticipating will happen as a result may or may not happen. But a whole hell of a lot comes that nobody anticipates as a result out of it. It might be the only universal law in history. So while you can, that's exactly what I'm talking about, because I can hear a number of people who might be listening to that, if they're even listening to me anymore, (laughs) listening to that going, well, see, we're being persecuted because of what we believe. No, you're just being strongly disagreed with because people think you're wrong. And if you've lost the argument From a moral level, it's real easy for you to just say, I'm not going to argue about it anymore, because then you don't have to hear that maybe your thinking's incomplete. 
that maybe you're not standing on the solid ground that you think you are. That maybe, from your religious point of view, you think you're pointing out the plank of sinfulness in someone else's eye when really the plank is in your own. I can cherry pick from Scripture too, just like anybody else, if that's what we want to do. Here's the thing. The impression that people have, generally speaking, I spend a lot of time in religious circles and in non-religious circles in all the various parts of my life, and I'm grateful for it because it gives me a better view, I think, overall of where people are. The dominating view of where the pro-life right movement and evangelical Christianity in general is, is that they're acting out of fear. Fear for the future. Fear that the comfortable present that they have won't exist in the future because the country is changing. Whether we're talking about demographically, economically, racially, religiously. And so, out of fear for the future, they're acting as they are in the moment. And the thing is, anybody who takes a close look can see that. And here's the problem with acting from fear. And this applies to anybody on any political issue, really. But I'm focusing it here because I think it needs to be said. Acting out of fear does not bring the best of who you are and what you have and what you believe to the table. Again, hearkening back to my own Christian upbringing, I was told not to fear because God had everything covered. I didn't grow up believing that God needed my help to make sure the world became a more perfect place. I didn't think God needed that help. In fact, I was told scripturally to not worry so much about tomorrow. Today has enough concerns of all its own. I grew up with a Christianity that says I'm supposed to look out for children, and I know where you're going, but again, 500,000 kids in foster care. They matter too. Widows and children. I grew up with a Christianity that told me that greed was a way bigger problem. In fact, greed over money is mentioned more times in the Old and New Testament than pretty much any other thing considered sinful, including sexual sin, politics. I don't remember anywhere Jesus of Nazareth saying, by the way, make sure all of you reform the Roman Empire. <laughs> Instead, he didn't spend a whole lot of time worrying about them. You know who else he didn't spend a lot of time wasting his energy on? Were the legal and religious zealots of the day. So you tell me, if you're from that position, why, why should I do any different? Why shouldn't I say compassion for mothers in situations who need to be able to make choices, whether you like it or not, with their doctors, whether the, the pregnancy was a quote-unquote mistake or not? Why should I care less about them? I do care about what happens to babies in this world. A lot of pro-choice people do too. In fact, I don't know of any pro-choice people who are anti-baby. But I seem to know a lot of pro-life people who are anti-mom 
who are anti the kid once the kid is born, there's a lot more of you, that second part, than there is the former, at least in my experience. Why shouldn't I stand up for the rights of people even if I don't share the same belief system as them, the same background as them? The Jesus I grew up hearing about didn't care about any of those differences either. And I know Christians struggle with this. It seems like seemingly there's like Christian responses to this range from sanctimony on one end to silence on the other. And it can be really hard for people in Christianity who don't fit this paradigm, particularly if they're in congregations that seem to be overwhelmingly pro-life, to really say anything, to feel like they belong, to feel like they have a right, to feel like they can be seen as morally upstanding. What I would say to all of them is, who cares what those other people think? They have the right to say what they think is moral and right in God's eyes as well as on the law. So do you. And there are plenty of people like you that if a congregation doesn't want you as part of them anymore because you're bringing up uncomfortable things, there's a lot of people that you can form a new congregation with. They're out there. Unfortunately, the reputation that particularly evangelical Christians, American Christians have earned is that I'll protect the rights, they'll protect the right of a baby until it's born, but then also on the flip side, won't make any moves to curb the ability of people to bring guns into schools to shoot those same kids dead. I won't back that. Or give up some of their hard-earned money in taxes to pay for programs. Or they're willing to adopt, but they're not willing to adopt one of those 500,000 foster kids because they may have problems or we don't know where they came from. It doesn't fit the rescuing model that so often permeates those types of efforts. And honestly, if that's the side you fit, I'm not sure I want you raising any of those 500,000 kids. If you're not willing to take a good, honest look at your own self in all of this with a little bit of humility and a recognition that despite whatever your religious belief is, you also have a social and political responsibility in the here and now. It's not just about whether you're going to go to heaven or not. How good's that going to look? <laughs> Get up to heaven and stand before the Almighty and you say, I did all of these things for the heavenly glory of your kingdom. And God says, well, what about all those poor kids? What about all those people who were disadvantaged? What about the poor? What about the destitute? What about the marginalized, the rejected? What about them? You ignored the living for the sake of the divine? What was the purpose of you being alive in the first place? I hate to tell you, that's biblical too. The law of unintended consequences is coming. And so for those who are celebrating this, I would ask you to consider, seriously, earnestly, consider the following. Is there any area where you have fallen short that you can admit and you can do better?
Can you give yourself the space to consider maybe rethinking your positions, if not on abortion, on gun control, on some level, on education discrimination, on your support for public welfare programs? Is there any room for a conversation on that? And are you ready for what's coming? Because the law of unintended consequences is real. The minority in the law now, after these four rulings, but particularly on abortion, is now the majority in dissent and advocacy. Three out of four Americans, roughly. That's a potential tidal wave of opinion, contrary to yours on abortion and perhaps on a lot more. And you can frame that as persecution, or you can see it for really what it is. Unintended consequences that come out of the choices that you have made, that you have advocated for. That's why I think it was short-sighted. That's why I think it was harmful. That's why I think there might be some sea changes that conservatives in this country are going to look back on long-term and say, wow, should we really have sacrificed the long-term for the short-term for ourselves to feel better? Anyway, something to think about. I appreciate you joining me on this episode of This Show is All About You. Next week for the July 4th holiday, I will be doing a show. I'm going to be talking about what do rights mean? What are the rights that people have, particularly not just in light of these rulings, but also in light of the 4th of July holiday, which is when it will air, and uh, a few things. So I'm going to be putting my historian hat on a little bit more next week. In the meantime, you can check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com and get uh, access to this episode as well as episode follow-ups. Uh, you can also uh, reach out to me there if you have any questions or comments on anything that I've said. If you missed any or all of this episode or others, you can download it as a podcast from wherever you get your podcasts. As my thank yous, as I always do every week, uh, thank you to uh, Hubbard Radio Seattle, which uh, produces and distributes this show is all about you. Eric Ryder is the in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. You can check them out at airsci.org. The original theme music for this show is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. And special thanks for contributing to this episode and to all that went well for me this week goes, as always, to Airway Science for Kids and Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Mark and Yolanda Frazier, Bruce Bullard, Antoinette Bernardo, Stacey Heller, Bruce Flommer, Buzz Lightyear, <laughs> Ann and Stephen Foster, Ken Winnikin, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. And uh, I simply didn't have uh, the words to finish up the, uh, the episode like I normally do with an original haiku uh, because it felt like trying to uh, harness all of this uh, into something where words just really failed it. So no haiku this week, but that will return next week. So and until then, no matter what side you're on, no matter how you're feeling about what's going on, chins up, everyone.